Hello world, I'm Gerard Cunningham. This is the Freelance Forum Spring 2021 podcast series. Over the years, the Freelance Forum has been made possible by support from the National Union of Journalists and the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. This is episode number 22 on the topic of fake news and propaganda. I'm talking with Elliot Higgins of Bellancat. Elliot, can we start by, uh, could you just tell me a bit about yourself and uh, Bell and Cat? So um, I'm the founder of Bell and Cat. It's a investigative organization that looks up a, a variety of subjects um, that's brought us in contact often with um, issues related to Russia. So, for example, our big story in 2014 when we launched was the investigation into the downing of Malaysian Airlines Flight 17. Um, we've looked into the poisoning of the Scripples, uh, the poisoning of uh, the Russian opposition leader Navalny, and a whole range of topics in between on other non-Russia related subjects. But um, given the topic of fake news and propaganda, that's usually where we encounter most of it. Um, you know, we've not only kind of debunked a lot of what Russia's been putting out on some of these subjects, but we've been targeted by fake news and propaganda ourselves. So uh, we're kind of, we get both ends of it, really. And is your work aimed at debunking individual stories or chasing down sources? Um, where exactly is your focus? So we're primarily interested in investigating events, but often when you're dealing with um, kind of large powers, um, you get various counter narratives being produced. So with MH17, for example, a few days after MH17 was shot down, Russia gave a press conference where it kind of presented its own evidence of what happened. And this evidence turned out to be nearly all false. Um, and we were able to prove that using the kind of online open source investigation methodologies that we deploy in all our investigations. But it was never really the intention to focus primarily on debunking anything. It was really, we wanted to know what had happened and there were different narratives being presented. And we were then examining those claims to see if they were true or not part of which is verifying the evidence that's being presented by the various parties. And in the case of um, MH17 and a lot of other stuff Russia's involved with, they presented uh, basically false evidence and you know straight-up lies to the public. Um, and rather uniquely, we were able to kind of systematically debunk those. Could you talk me through perhaps a case study or two? What exactly are the techniques you use in debunking these stories? So I can use the uh, example of the uh, Russians' July uh, 21st, 2014 press conference on MH17. So this was from the Russian Ministry of Defence. It was an hour-long press conference, and they had four major claims. Um, there had been a video that had been shared online that showed a uh, book missile launcher on the back of a low loader traveling through a town. And Ukrainians had actually published this video um, and claimed that it was in a town uh, in the east of Ukraine, and the missile launcher was heading towards the border with Russia. Um, and this town was under the control of the separatists in Ukraine. Now, Russia were claiming that, in fact, this was filmed in a completely different location. This is despite this uh, location actually being found on um, Street View imagery, where you could actually look at exactly the same angle, the same information, match off all the little details. But Russia was saying, actually, this is filmed somewhere else. And the reason we know it's filmed somewhere else, because on the billboard, because there's a billboard in the back of this video, there's a car advertisement. And in the bottom corner, there's some text. Now, in the video that was shared by Ukraine that showed this missile launcher, 
it was very blurry. You couldn't even read it. There was no chance you could read it. But Russia said this text actually says this street address that's in this completely different town that's under Ukraine control. So therefore, Ukraine's lying. But we had already kind of figured out exactly where this had been filmed. And we could actually go, someone actually went to that location, took a photograph of the billboard, and the text Russia said it was, you know, this specific address. And it wasn't an address, it was just a piece of text that said branches nationwide. And that showed Russia was lying. They also presented satellite imagery that they claimed showed um, imagery of a Ukrainian missile base with a book missile launcher in it. And on July 14th, the book missile launcher was parked there. And on July 17th, in the morning, they had a satellite image that showed the missile launcher was gone. We examined that imagery and we noticed that in one corner of the image, there was a area of trees. And that area of trees um, had actually been cut down. And we knew that because we could go to Google Earth and look at the July 17th image from 2014 and show the trees had been cut down. And they had been cut down only a few weeks earlier. So Russia's imagery showed trees that no longer existed. And there was also markings on the ground you could see in the satellite imagery of like worn away grass and dirt that had a very unique pattern. And that pattern matched a satellite imagery, again available on Google Earth, from the end of June. So we could actually date that satellite imagery to a very specific time, and it was not July when Russia was claiming. Another claim was that they had uh, radar imagery that showed MH17 changed course. Um, so that wasn't true at all because you could track um, the route of uh, MH17 using flight tracking software. Um, in fact, when Russia gave another press, they, the, Russia gave this press conference and said they lost the radar data a few days later and they couldn't present it to the official investigation. But then they found it a couple of years later, just before the joint investigation team, the criminal investigation into MH17, were going to present their own evidence. And they said they had just mysteriously found this information they had lost. And they presented it again, but this time they seemed to have forgotten that he had changed course um, in their original press conference, and it had a completely different course to what it had in the original press conference. So this time their own radar data debunked their previous claim from a few years earlier. So this is just something that happens time and time again with Russia. And I always advise people, if you want to you know, practice your kind of investigation skills, watch your Russian press conference on a conflict and then just fact check everything because you'll almost certainly find they're lying about something in there. And that can be verified through various sources. What's your working definition of fake news there? I mean, it, it's become a fairly elastic term. It can mean anything from made-up stories or propaganda, as you described in the Russian case, to just things I don't agree with on the internet. It's, I mean, it's not a very, I've never found it a very good term because it has been kind of used and abused by all kinds of different people. So I try and just focus on kind of the idea of disinformation and misinformation. So misinformation is, you know, false information that is just, you know, wrong in a sense unintentionally. And disinformation is when people are purposely sharing false information. Um, I mean, there's different kinds of it. I mean, we the way we kind of look at often, you know, we, you can look at the way, for example, going back to Russia again, you know, when they give press conferences about their airstrikes in Syria, how they, you know, they, they lie in different ways. Sometimes they'll show a satellite image saying, look, this building hasn't been bombed and it's not the building that was supposed to be bombed in the first place. They're lying about the location of what was actually bombed. Or they'll use misdated satellite imagery. So they'll show satellite imagery from before the bombing to claim that stuff hasn't been bombed. And these are all from real life examples way they've um, done this 
or you know they'll, they'll just um, even edit imagery and you know say you know this is kind of satellite imagery of the location and it's just been effectively photoshopped. So that is disinformation. Misinformation, though, is, you know, just people kind of making mistakes and kind of you know, repeating them time and time again. Um, so the kind of term fake news for me is just so ill-defined and so broad that it's not even really something that we would kind of use as terminology in our own work. Does Bellingcat do any work on the other side of fake news? I mean, at the one side of the spectrum, what you've been talking about there, you've got someone who's actively producing things that aren't true. Uh, in this case, Russian propaganda. But on the other side of the equation, you could look at here in Ireland or you know, anywhere else, there might be a local news website or some or a, a site that presents itself as a news website, but which spends an awful lot of its time propagating and amplifying stories that are disinformation. Does, does Bellingcat work on that end or... Is that something that other journalists would have to take up using your work as the foundation? I mean, for, for us, um, my approach is really looking at the way in which the internet has kind of enabled um, fake news and kind of disinformation and misinformation to be created and spread. Because often, you know, I've, I've mentioned Russia, and often when people are talking about disinformation, they see it as something that's happening from an external force to a community. So often it's Russia's Russia disinformation kind of driving us all mad with, you know, false information. But really, it's something that we do to ourselves. Online societies, um, you know, it basically has become so much part of what we are as a society now. The online world is, you know, really taking over everything. There's no real, for me, separation between the two now. And that's only something that's happened very recently, you know, over the last 10 years. So people who still see the kind of online world and the offline world as two separate things, I think, are thinking about the world as it was 10 years ago, not how it is today. So when I'm kind of looking at this, I'm kind of thinking of, you know, the communities that we encounter when we're doing our work. We've worked on a whole range of different topics. Um, and you always seem to find a community that kind of is it, counter to what you're finding. You know, they're, they're against you. For example, when we work on things like chemical weapons attacks in Syria, there is a community that has kind of grown up around the idea that chemical weapon attacks in Syria are fake. And this ties into another number of other kind of theories that, for example, the white helmets are all kind of jihadis and faking every single video that they're doing. Or that the US is helping fake these chemical attacks because they want to invade Syria and take all its oil. Those kind of ideas. Now, fundamentally in those kind of communities there's a level of distrust in traditional sources of authority and that's often based around the um 2003 invasion of iraq where you know we had you know western governments the us and uk in particular um basically betraying the trust of um the people by making a false case for war and that i think for many of these people were was a you know a, a traumatic kind of time it made them really distrust these governments to the point that they see them as the enemy so they see anything now that they think is to the benefit of the uk or us and involves conflict in the middle east as an extension of what happened in 2003 it's more ways for the west to kind of you know steal oil take throw overthrow these countries rip, fake evidence of chemical weapons attacks and war crimes to justify it so they frame everything around that and the thing with the internet 
if you're you distrust the government you distrust the media you distrust medical professionals you'll look for an alternative you'll look for an alternative source of authority and find communities online where people kind of agree with what you're saying like oh we can't trust the government over coronavirus we can't trust the government over um you know mh17 or you know syria and generally those people um in those communities you know feel the same way that you do and they kind of you know they they will share articles they will share opinions they will share information that reinforces that and if someone kind of starts challenging that information they see that them as the enemy so they will attack those people and within those communities you also have this kind of form of radicalization going on because for example take the exact idea of coronavirus you might be suspicious of medical professionals or the government who are telling you there's now this vaccine that's been developed in less than a year we know other vaccines take so much longer so you go to these sites where people are saying oh we're not sure about these vaccines now some of those people might not only be unsure about vaccines but they might actually say vaccines are actually you know can be bad for you you've got to be careful about the number of vaccines you're taking um because it can make you ill some of those people might say in fact it doesn't only make you ill it can cause autism it can you know make you really sick it can have all these kind of impacts on you some of those people might also be saying not only does it give you autism but also bill gates is putting microchips in the vaccine so he can kind of track all of us for some reason now, you might not believe that. You might not get to the point of believing there's microchips in vaccines, but some people will. And effectively what's happening is these communities are becoming increasingly radicalised and they're creating this kind of misinformation, disinformation themselves by basically being part of these echo chambers where they reinforce each other's messages and rejects any attempts from fact-checking from the outside that shows they're wrong. And they see those kind of people as being part of the system that's against them, that the oppressors. Now... This, um, you know, doesn't affect everyone. It doesn't happen everywhere. The problem is when you don't offer alternatives to people that are kind of evidence-based investigations, they are going to find these communities. And these communities do not see themselves as agents of disinformation. They see themselves as heroic truth seekers fighting against oppression and the lies that are part of, you know, mainstream uh, authority and uh, society. And that makes it really difficult to reach out to them. And what you do see, though, are, you know, other you know parties like for example the russian federation sometimes using these communities to amplify their own messages is to kind of reinforce reinforce stuff for example um you know with mh17 you know they've used that kind of community of mh17 troopers to kind of reinforce you know the idea that mh17 was shot down by ukraine they've you know promoted these syrian chemical weapon troopers and these kind of anti-white helmets communities you know taking them to the un giving them a platform in russia today to promote these ideas so rather than kind of you know russia for example creating this disinformation they're really amplifying what already exists because of in the way online societies kind of self-radicalize around certain issues and for me the best way to counter that is to build communities that are actually focused on evidence-based investigation engaging with people at a younger level um you know for example this work being done by the student view organization which is setting up pop-up newsrooms in schools with 16 to 18 year olds showing them how to do kind of investigations in their local areas and showing them that even as a 16 to 18 year old you can you know have freedom of information requests you can actually inquire about stuff you actually have a power to do that and i think combining that with kind of the open source investigation we're doing which is heavily evidence-based could be very useful and empowering and also make people less prone to believing in conspiracy theories because they are more analytical when they come to finding information online and it's not about doing that 
you know, teach people how to fight disinformation. It's about teaching people how to be better members of society and contribute in a positive way. And we aren't really doing that as a society at the moment. We're just kind of leaning back and hoping that everything's okay without really realising what the internet is doing to people. And I think the problem is, is so often when I'm talking to kind of policymakers and the people can have an impact here, they don't understand that at all. They think it's all about kind of algorithms and you know facebook and yeah and it's it's that's just like the you know that's the end result of the problem not the core kind of root of the problem and until we can really address the root of the problem then you know we're doomed basically uh that leads into the next thing i was thinking of asking you which is uh what steps can journalists take to build or rebuild uh, trust from the public, both as institutions and for freelancers in particular, you know, as individuals. Oh, I mean, it's it's, t- it's, t- it's a tough one, I think it's fair to say. I mean, for one thing, don't be one of these people who just shares every kind of link you see on the internet that reinforces your own ideas, which I hope most freelancers wouldn't be doing. Um, it, 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 I mean, there's so many different areas that different people work in. You know, one thing that's been really good for uh, the work we do is this kind of evidence-based investigation that's been kind of really um, a good way to kind of build trust. Um, I think it's difficult with freelancers to do that within a structure because, you know, they're freelancers and they aren't part of a media organisation. And really the media that's been doing really well at this are, you know, people like the New York Times and the BBC who've set up these visual investigation teams using open source evidence where they have the, um, you know, basically the money that you need to do this and for smaller organizations and individuals you it's very difficult to put yourself in that position and the thing of open source investigation if you're a freelancer it is very um time consuming it takes a long time that there's great stuff to be found but it's very time consuming and as a freelancer if you're only getting paid a few hundred quid for an article you need to be pumping out more than a lot more than you know a handful of articles a week when often with open source investigation it can be a huge amount of work and even if you spend weeks and weeks on something you can suddenly pay it you know get paid you know a thousand pounds maybe for like something you put your life into for a month or two that's not going to pay your mortgage so it's actually really really difficult and unfortunately i think this is a problem with a lot of freelancers where it's hard to be a full-time freelancer and have that real depth of kind of investigation without having another source of income or you know having that kind of support and i think that's really unfortunate i mean like a lot of people who kind of end up working for bellingcat who learn how to do open source investigations usually do that either because they're at university and they and they're doing like a master's degree where they have time to do it as part of the master's degree and they're kind of supported anyway or they're coming from completely different jobs that they're doing kind of full time and then in the evenings they're kind of learning how to do open source investigation so it's, it's really difficult unfortunately and it's a real shame because i think you know there's really valuable skills and really um interesting investigations that are possible and if you're someone who's really passionate about a topic applying this kind of investigation methodology can be really effective and kind of you know give yourself a much greater understanding of what you're looking at and give yourself a really unique experience but unfortunately the way i think you know traditional media operates at the moment it doesn't really reward that and unfortunately i think it should i don't think we're going to solve the problem of underpaid freelancers anytime soon i'm afraid (laughs) yeah unfortunately uh when i was younger um Social media at the time was using it. Do not feed the trolls was the mantra there. Um, engaging with a troll meant basically you were bringing your, that troll to the attention of your audience and boosting their signal. Now, on the other hand, you know, a journalist instinct is you know, to engage, um, to try and set the record straight. 
at what point does feeding the trolls become a risk that you have to undergo? And how long should you ignore before engaging? It's, it's a tricky one because I've seen some people I would definitely consider trolls kind of forming these kind of organizations. And then before you know it, after a few years, they're talking to like members of parliament and about their ideas about why the white helmets are terrorists and there's no chemical weapons attacks in Syria. And this is like a genuine thing that has happened. Um, and sometimes the trolls end up, you know, you discover they're actually professors at universities who are teaching their students these kind of things. And um, that's a problem as well. But how you engage with them, I mean, screaming at people on the internet isn't really... I mean, that's just, you know, point scoring that doesn't really build to anything. I mean, if you can turn it into something that's kind of more investigative, you know, question why there are professors at universities in the UK who are teaching their, you know, students effectively conspiracy theories. I mean, that's certainly been something um, this, um, you know, people like Piers Robinson and David Miller have been, you know, professors at various universities have been called out on. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, you know, they've, they're the sort of people who have influence with members of parliament, you know, and that's dangerous. And that's, I think, that's the point where this stuff has to be kind of called out. In a way, if you think of these communities, I think these kind of um, alternative media ecosystems, these counterfactual communities, as kind of bubbles that exist on the internet. In a way, a Venn diagram, a circle and a Venn diagram. And you have kind of the mainstream kind of um, discourse. And when those bubbles, you know, those circles in the Venn diagram start touching the mainstream discourse, that's when you kind of have to, in a sense, police those areas, look at where that's happening, rather than engaging with every single person on the internet who's a kind of wild opinion about something because i know from personal experience you can spend all day arguing with these people and you don't change anyone's mind it might be entertaining for the person watching it but it, it's kind of really not worth your time but it's still worth i think understanding these communities and seeing what they're doing because they do have a certain amount of influence you know these are the people who do you know for example with syria you do see some of these people ending up on the kind of Russia today and then they end up speaking in front of the kind of a UN committee or something like that because Russia is amplifying it and in a way that's the kind of more interesting end of this how these communities form and then how they're being amplified by other actors into kind of more mainstream discourse and that is the kind of thing you have to I think observe and kind of you know focus on not just having arguments with people on Twitter all day which I have done repeatedly but I try and cut, to cut down it's my guilty pleasure I mean, do it for fun, but also be aware that these people are bad faith actors and nothing you will say will change their mind because they're effectively, you know, usually by the point they're screaming at you on the internet about some conspiracy theories, like, like arguing with someone from a cult that, you know, their cult is bad. You're not going to win that argument because they're you know, never going to change their mind. I think part of the trick might be to engage with the argument, but not with the person who wants an argument. Yeah, I think that's kind of uh, that's kind of my approach now. It's it's rather than engaging directly with the people who are saying the crazy stuff, you're kind of like you t you talk around the kind of the issue. It's like, on, for example, on Syria chemical weapons, it's something I've worked on now for nearly ten years. And throughout that, I've seen, you know, alongside the community of people I've kind of worked with who are like serious, you know, chemical weapons experts, researchers, even the victims, you know, of the attacks, seeing that kind of community grow with a focus on justice and accountability, which we're seeing kind of more now. Alongside that, you have this con community of, of conspiracy theorists around it. And the impact they actually have is very minimal when it comes to actually comparing it to the justice and accountability efforts around this. But also now, because of the work we're doing, we're kind of moving into things like documentary production. And I'm hoping to do a big documentary series on serial, Syrian chemical weapons attacks and, you know, the, the, everything around those. And that will have evidence and all kinds of stuff in it. So 
I'm kind of less concerned about this kind of these crazy people on the internet who thinks there's no chemical weapons attacks in Syria and they're all being faked by the CIA or whatever they believe because, you know, we're hopefully going to have a kind of a big series where this stuff is being explained and demonstrated to people where it kind of doesn't matter if there's, you know, 100 people on the internet who are screaming about, you know, false flags and stuff like that. Uh, you've been talking about uh, Russia a lot, um, but... Well, in in Ireland, at least in my own experience, it seems to me that most disinformation and propaganda efforts seems to be originating in the USA, in uh, the far right and on the Christian right, uh, and they're coming from the USA to Ireland, or sometimes via the UK as a proxy. Uh, the transmission seems to be USA, England, and then we we catch the worst of both the Brexit bug and the Americans. Is, have you done any work on who the major players are, you know, how much is coming from North Korea, Russia, Antarctica? Yeah, I mean, we've we've actually um, been looking at kind of coronavirus conspiracy theories and where they were coming from. There's a, quite an interesting, um, uh, I, I guess, mechanism of how that was working in the US, where you, ta- you ta- were having these kind of daily press conferences with Trump and coronavirus until he kind of got bored of them. Um, he would say something kind of insane, wild, or completely untrue. You'd then have the kind of alt-right media ecosystem, the kind of Breitbarts of the world, kind of laundering that, that saying, ah, oh, he said it to try- trigger the libs, or actually this is true if you kind of, kind of fit it in this circle into a square hole. They kind of launder it, and then the right-wing media like Fox News would kind of then take the kind of more easier to consume parts of that and basically put it on Fox News and they'd have people on who were from these kind of alt-right kind of media ecosystems coming on to talk like experts when really they were just recycling the president's propaganda then the president would kind of watch that and uh, you know think oh I was right all along and like keep on doubling down on the nonsense he was saying and you could see that happening like a 24-hour cycle of that happening every single day it was like it was maddening to see that happening I, I think the thing with the US which which is fortunately still fairly unique is because you have the kind of decades of this kind of very partisan um, politics that's creating this very partisan media ecosystem where, um, you know, Fox News is always pro-Republican. And when you have someone like Trump, who is a liar, who lies all the time, who's just puts out rubbish they have to constantly kind of reinforce the idea that actually he's telling the truth so they always have to kind of you know figure out how to put that round peg in the square hole of truth and um they it basically what happens is they have a media ecosystem there that is designed to serve power not truth and that's really dangerous because then what starts happening is as and politicians like Trump start engaging with the fringes of society. They start engaging with things like QAnon, for example. It makes it very difficult for then the mainstream kind of ecosystem to reject that outright. So slowly you get this kind of creep of people saying, well, actually, maybe QAnon has got something, you know, and you're seeing that happening in the US all the time. And this happened, you know, January 6th in Washington, D.C. is a great example of what happens when you don't challenge that, that you kind of you have this kind of soft underbelly of kind of Republican politics that allows this kind of entry of conspiracy theories because they won't reject it. And because of that, it starts becoming part of your base. And then you suddenly discover that like 30 percent of your base believes stuff that is completely insane. And you can't reject that because then you're unelectable. So this is what's happening in the U.S. at the moment. Even though Trump is gone, the Republicans are finding it very, very hard 
to you know detach themselves from conspiracy theories even if they wanted to which at this point is very unclear if they actually want to or they're actually still kind of doubling down on you know using things like you know these far-right you know conspiracy theories and things like QAnon um, and it basically completely undermines their you know <laughs> you know US democratic uh, democracy and it's really dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous. And they start exporting this rubbish to other countries. And there's always people who are in these other countries that are willing to kind of promote this stuff for their own gain. So it's really about, you know, having a media ecosystem that is, you know, serving power, not serving kind of truth. And when that happens and it starts happening at a scale where these are mainstream media organisations, not just fringe media organisations that are engaged with mainstream politics... That's incredibly dangerous. And, um, you know, it has to be called out, but it, it's very difficult to call it out when you have um, politicians who are kind of too scared to kind of really say, really stand up against this. And I think it, until that starts happening, we're going to see this kind of slow creep. It's like a cancer spreading, you know, first through Republican politics. I'm worried it'll start spreading into kind of, you know, Democratic politics as well. Because, and everyone just gets more and more extreme until the truth doesn't even matter anymore it's just about whatever you can use to cling on to power to get that extra kind of one percent of votes that'll tip you over into being able to win a state instead of losing it and i i, I mean i really don't know how this is going to kind of progress because it already seems that you know the kind of the cancerous conspiracy theories has kind of infected the republican party it's growing and what happens when instead of having kind of one QAnon conspiracy theorist in the House of Representatives, we have 50 and they start getting positions of power because, you know, the entire party's been undermined because of this. And that not only undermined, but, you know, gratefully undermined because they think they can cling on to power for another four years if they do it. What one piece of advice would you give to journalists as they're going about their job every day just to minimize the damage that can be done? Um, I'll call out mistruth when you see it, but make sure you know what you're doing. Because the thing is, if you're a liar and you lie about everything, it doesn't matter if you get called out because you'll move on to the next lie. And you see that all the time. If you're a conspiracy theorist and your conspiracy theory doesn't pan out, you'll move on to the next thing. You won't apologize. You know, people in your community won't care. If you're a journalist and you get something wrong, you will hear about that for the rest of your life. And that's the problem. When you're someone who actually cares about the truth, getting it wrong matters. So if you're going to call out people for lying, you need to make sure you're 100% correct every single time. And sometimes that takes effort. And don't fall into the lazy thing of thinking because someone else you trust has called out people for lying that they're going to be right 100% of the time because that can also lead you down some rabbit holes that don't always uh, work out. I would assume the other side of that is if you do make a mistake, acknowledge it fast and acknowledge it completely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, have you a website or a link that you'd like people, if people want more information? Bellingcat. Uh, it's Um You could also mention that We Are Bellingcat has been released recently, the book I've written. Um, if you want to send me a link for that, I can for Amazon or whatever, I can put that in the uh, notes when the, when the podcast goes up. That's great. I'll do that. Cool. Elliot Higgins, thanks for joining me. And to everyone listening, stay safe and take care. This has been the Freelance Forum podcast with Gerard Cunningham. The forum is brought to you by the Dublin Freelance Branch of the National Union of Journalists and made possible by network funding from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, Sectoral Learning and Development Programme.
Music is from Pod Summit, released under a Creative Commons Zero license into the public domain. Thank you for listening.